Okay, Genesis chapter 1 does not speak of man's likeness to creation, but of his likeness to God. So, for many of us, Genesis chapter 1, we just kind of blow through because it's like really redundant, long, and we're, we feel like, oh, that's like a kindergarten lesson plan. We're more advanced than that. Um, maybe. I don't know. I'm just speaking for myself. So, Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of creation. And it follows a certain rhythm. Like, when we read through it, if we read it aloud, it follows a certain rhythm. Right? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss, and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Boom. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and then separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Evening came and morning followed the first day. Then God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate one body of water from the other. Boom. God made the dome and it separated the water below from the dome, below the dome from the water above the dome. And so it happened. God called the dome sky Evening came, morning followed the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into a single basin. And so it happened. The water under the sky was gathered into its basin. God called the dry land the earth and the basin of water. He called the sea. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, every kind of plant that bears seed, every kind of fruit tree on the earth and that bears fruit with its seed in it. And so it happened. The earth brought forth vegetation, yada, yada, yada. Evening came, morning followed the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky. So it happened. Evening came, morning followed the fourth day. Then God said, let water teem with an abundance of living creatures. Boom, so it happened. Evening came, morning followed the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, tame animals, crawling things, and every kind of wild animal. And so it happened. God made every kind of wild animal, every kind of tame animal, and every kind of thing that crawls on the ground. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame animals, all the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the ground. God also said, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant on all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. And to all the wild animals... All the birds of the air and all living creatures that crawl on the earth, I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything that he had made and found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. So the rhythm of creation is God said, let there be something. Boom. So it happened. He saw that it was very good. Evening came and morning followed. But then when God creates man... It's this extended narrative, and so it kind of captures the attention of the listener. 
And when he makes man, it's the only time he mentions in his image. And it's the only time that he says, and he saw that it was very good. And he sees that it's very good in the ordering of creation. So that everything is created for man. And so there's something definitively different that happens when God creates man in his image and likeness. And this point is sort of one of those points that we say, well, duh, of course. But we remember we live in a culture that says there is no difference between man and animals. Every celebrity on the news is more concerned about the livelihood of animals than the livelihood of human beings. Oftentimes people justify their behavior by citing what animals do. Animals aren't monogamous, so human beings, it's not natural to be monogamous. Which is ridiculous. But the theological point is that we are different from the animals. We're not like the animals. We're like God. And so the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 is the point that, to the fact that man's likeness is to God, not to creation. The Creator actually seems to halt before calling man to existence, as if he entered back into himself to make a decision. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Right? It's sort of like this divine pause, like God's going through and making everything good, and then he sort of steps back into himself to reflect on the significance of what he's about to do. It's like an artist who's painting his masterpiece. And he sort of has everything going. It all looks good. Right? Like, remember Bob Ross when he used to paint on TV? And he'd be like, we're going to make a little stream. And I'm like, he's just like drawing lines on the thing. And then all of a sudden, like, he does a couple things. And you're like, wow, that's an amazing picture. And so an artist who's painting his masterpiece, he's sort of got it all going. And he's about to make the final few brushstrokes that are going to make it amazing. He kind of steps back to reflect on and savor what he's about to do. And that's what God did when he created us in his image and his likeness. And so we're defined by our likeness to God. John Paul II says, the first account is concise, free from any trace of subjectivism. It doesn't talk about what it's like to be in God's image. It simply says, man is in God's image. Man is different from the rest of creation. Just an objective fact. It doesn't enter into the psychological or the subjective realm. It contains only the objective fact and defines the uh, objective reality, both when it speaks about the creation of the human being, male and female, in the image of God, and when it adds a little later the words of the first blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God saw that it was very good. Right? It was very good. And so John Paul II says, being and good are convertible terms. Right? That something is good by virtue of the fact that it is. And so the first truth is that it's good that we exist. 
It's good that we're here. And again, we live in a world that people need to be told it's good that you exist. It's good that you exist. Sister. Well, I don't know if this question, you want to address it now or a different time, but we went back to that whole idea that we're separate from the animal. And, of course, I teach, we teach in elementary schools, and so what happens to Fifi when he dies, my dog, and what happens to my kitty, and, and why, you know, animals can think, they can choose. He chooses. Can you address just, I don't know, briefly, I mean, I always teach that, you know, animals are given a soul for this life, and they have instinct to respond to the world, Yeah. but they're not, um, they don't have an immortal soul, uh, they don't have an infused uh, natures that God gave them. Um, I don't know, just any other thoughts you could... Uh, uh, one of the things that I would respond to, so the question is about, like, as we're explaining that human beings are different from animals, how do you explain to a small child that his animal is an animal and not a person? Like, what happens to my dog when he dies? Things like that. And um, and how do we compete with all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> Those kind of movies. Um, but one of, one of the things that... Uh, and it gets it gets hard to like explain this down, but like animals don't have the power of self reflection the way that human beings have the power of self reflection, right? So a dog can choose like my dog chooses to come and lick my face or something like that because he responds to me and not to other people or something like that. But like when your dog's getting a little heavy and it's hard for them to climb the stairs, they don't go on a diet. Like if you put their food out, they're going to eat the food that's there. They're not going to like say, "Oh man, I need to slim down." And, you know, cut down on the kibbles and bits. Um, So they don't have the power of self-reflection. Like, they don't actually make those kind of choices. Um, Another thing would be, and this, like, enters into the realm of, like, suffering. So, like, an animal can't imagine what their life would be like in another circumstance, like human beings can look up into the sky and see a bird flying and say to themselves, I want to do that. And then we can figure out a way to do that. Which isn't part of our nature to fly, but we can figure out how do I build a machine that will help me to do what a bird does. Whereas a dog doesn't sort of say, I want to walk on two legs. This is my goal of my life. Even though you could train a dog sometimes to walk on two legs. But... It's not in their nature to try to do something outside of themselves. It's like the ability to transcend. And transcend means like I can go sort of go outside of myself and reflect on my own life. And think about what my life would be like in other circumstances. Because if a dog could do that, he would notice that Jimmy, the neighbor, is a lot nicer than his master, Billy, and he would want to go live with Jimmy instead of Billy. But dogs typically don't do that. I don't know. Maybe there's a case, but I've never really heard of a dog doing that. Um, and dogs have instincts, right, to be in attached relationships. Which means that a dog, by its very nature, is a pack animal. Like, it survives better in relationship with other dogs than it does on its own. But, like, that's a quality that they have by instinct because it helps them to survive. You know, cats, not so much. 
there's not like a pack of cats. And yeah, thank God. <laughs> right? That's why like a cat can be an aloof pet. Right? Like I have this this cat, but the cat doesn't really care that I'm here. They just go through their own life doing their thing. I mean, typically, stereotypically. Um, so, like, those would be some of the differences. Just talking about the difference between an animal and a human being. When it comes to whether or not that animal goes to heaven, um, like, I think it's safe to say that God does with that animal whatever is in God's plan for the animal. You know, like some people say, like, if your eternal happiness is dependent on your dog, then your dog will be in heaven with you. It would be correct to say there, are anim- there could be animals in heaven, but they're going to be animals that will be... I'm picturing like the animals in cre- in before the world was created, and these animals were tame, they didn't bite, they didn't scratch, they didn't spit on you. Um, Uh, it could be yes and so when we get into like eschatology and what things are going to be like in the eschaton or like at the end of time at the resurrection of the body right all creation is renewed at the resurrection of the body and so we could assume that as all creation is renewed at the resurrection of body there will be trees in the resurrection too like there will be matter and so there may be like the whole hierarchy of being resurrected and so there may be dogs in the resurrection of the body, but they wouldn't be like that dog necessarily, right? Because we don't believe that dog has an immortal soul and they're just like sitting around waiting until they have, you know, paws to lick again. Um, so that's, I think that would be a safe way of talking about it. So, because it gets really confusing and people are attached to their animals and that's good. And But I think that, like, that's also an opportunity to reflect on the fact that, like, their interest and their attachment in the animal, even though the animal doesn't really understand them completely, um, is an opportunity to reflect on our Lord and on God's attachment to human beings, you know, and his love for human beings, you know. And just to, like, reiterate that, you know, as much as you want you know, like your dog to be in heaven with you, like that's what Jesus wants for your life. Like he wants you to be in heaven with him. And kind of like try to turn that into an opportunity to talk about their relationship with our Lord and our Lord's relationship with them and how precious that they are to our Lord. So it's just an opportunity to sort of flip it and talk about their relationship with God. Because they don't, um, fundamentally, if they think that the animal is the same as them, then they're kind of falling into that distortion of I'm more like creation than I'm like God. So, and animals don't worship, they don't pray, they don't, like, put on plays, they don't, like, tap dance, run around, around, things like that. But they are there for them. You know, and for some of these kids, probably their dog is a more trustworthy person in their life than their parent, or a trustworthy creature in their life than their parent. Sometimes that can be the case. You know, and so pointing them back to who our Lord is is always important, right? To try to like heal that. Okay. All right. So Genesis chapter two. 
One can say that this depth is above all subjective in nature and thus in some way psychological. So in Genesis 2, you have this kind of breakdown from Genesis 1 where man and woman are created at the same time in the image of God. Now in Genesis chapter 2, there's going to be more of a reflection on what it's like to be created in the image of God. Okay, what it's like to be created in the image of God. So we say, God created us male and female in his image and likeness. In Genesis chapter 2, we say, okay, what does that actually mean? So when Jesus says, from the beginning it was not so, don't you know that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? This is why a father... Or some, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. The first account moves to the second. All right, and these are words from Jesus that describe the unity and indissolubility of marriage. So Christ links to the beginning, but he leads to the boundary. Okay, this is John Paul II's image or John Paul II's language. Okay, it starts in the beginning, that period of. She just leave this timeline on the board all the time. Creation. Original sin, cross, redemption, heaven. So Christ is talking about the beginning, but it's moving towards what he calls the boundary experience. So original sin he calls the boundary experience. It's like the shift from when everything was good to this distortion. Okay, so the cross is also going to be a boundary experience that moves from living in distortion to living in clarity, living in grace. Genesis 2.24 This is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Genesis 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. And then in Genesis 3, we have the fall of man. Okay, So we start with God created a male and female. This is why father and mother leave. What, this is why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. We move towards the boundary. They were both naked and felt no shame because shame happens here with this event. Okay, and then we move into that period of historical sinfulness with original sin. So we see here the distinction between original innocence and the state of man's sinfulness or the state of integral nature and fallen nature. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 2, we're moving this difference between when we're integrated, when we're fallen. Everything's good, then it's distorted. Christ's words in Matthew's gospel also point to the redemption of the body. It also points to that period of history after the cross. Christ's response points us back beyond the boundary running in Genesis between the state of original innocence and the state of sinfulness. His words allow us to find an essential continuity in man and a link between these two different states or dimensions of the human being. His words allow us to find an essential continuity and a link between these two different states or dimensions of the human being. And when he talks about having a continuity, like there is a continuity that runs through salvation history. 
And it's an important continuity that we know that everything was good. Then something happened in our life. We were affected by the sin of others. We're affected by our own sin. We have this distortion. Jesus enters into that in order to redeem it. There's a continuity. It's the whole story. Okay, like I was talking before, it's the whole story. Because a lot of people, a lot of Christians, they sort of tell their story as if it started here. And we lose sight of the continuity. Sometimes when we have wounds in our life, we sort of say, yeah, this thing happened, but I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen, and I'm just going to tell my life story like here. And when that happens and we lose sight of the continuity of our lives, that disintegration always comes back to haunt us. You know, like even on the psychological level, it comes back to haunt us. You know, when... Like, I remember growing up in my household because I had this thing that happened. My mom died. Right, so I had this life before my mom died. My mom died. I had this life here. So I remember growing up in my household and like not feeling like I fit into my own family. Just sort of sitting at the table and I would reflect on, I wonder if there's some kind of feeling that exists between my stepmom and her natural children that I don't experience between her and me. And I also had this kind of um, just lack of attachment and lack of joy in general. So at a certain point, I like Christmas, I remember my stepmom commenting me, to me about Christmas. She was like, we could have a brand new Ferrari in the driveway and you would just be like, okay. Because I just didn't get excited about things that I should get excited about. And, but I didn't know why. And it was only after I had been in Rome studying that our Lord sort of brought some memories to the surface and I gained access to this part of my life that then everything else in my life made sense. And that sort of insecurity faded. And I had an explanation for what's like, why things were distorted so that I could intentionally invite our Lord back into whatever it was that distorted them. And that integration, at least like my own story of integration, it only can happen within the narrative of our entire lifespan you know, it doesn't happen sort of by saying, okay, I'm going to forget that and I'm going to put on this. You know, St. Paul says, like, you're a new person in Christ and all that. But he also says, I was persecutor of Christians. Then I became this. Then I became this new person in Christ. It doesn't erase what happened to us. And when our Lord points back to the beginning leading up through this reflection on shame, he's pointing to that integral integral approach to our lives and how we understand our lives in the context of salvation. So the state of sin is part of historical man, but it plunges its roots deeply into his theological prehistory. So when we talk about the state of sin, he's kind of setting us up to reflect on this later, it's part of this period here, this distorted period, but it plunges its roots back here. Because we understand the effects of sin by understanding what got distorted in the first place. 
we under, if we understand what it meant that things were good, then we have a better sense of our own distortions. Every point of our historical sinfulness must be explained with reference to original innocence. Even as we identify the historical sinfulness, we also participate in the history of redemption. So St. Paul says we groan inwardly while we await the redemption of our bodies. So this point, every point of our historical sinfulness must be explained with reference to original innocence is also important. This is like when Pope Francis talks about the need to proclaim the kerygma first. Like to proclaim the good news of salvation first. Instead of condemning what's distorted first. So we can sit up and say homosexual acts are wrong, masturbation's wrong, premarital sex is wrong, da 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 But if we don't refer it back to the way we were created to be in the beginning and it makes no sense. It sounds arbitrary. So any time we're teaching moral theology, right, it needs to be rooted in that anthropology. It needs to be rooted in who we are created to be as human beings. Because if it's rooted in, like, in the beginning it was not so, let me reflect, like, this is what God created you to be then the rest of it can make sense about how that got broken or how that got distorted. And that's the method of John Paul II in the theology of the body, is to go back and reflect on how it was supposed to be in the beginning so that when we talk about our historical sinfulness, it's rooted in, and it refers back to original innocence. In the interpretation of the revelation about man and above all about the body, we must, for understandable reasons, appeal to experience because bodily man is perceived by us above all in experience. So in the approach that we're taking, we're going to talk about and root things in experience. And Genesis chapter 2 helps us to root it in experience. Right? To talk about what it was like for Adam in the garden, like what that temptation was like that happened at the fall, what it was like to realize I'm created in the image and likeness of God. Okay, because people understand experience. And it does not mean that we are separating ourselves from objective truth. Okay, sometimes we criticize the use of experience because we say our experience doesn't matter, the truth is this. Okay? By referring to experience, we are not separating ourselves from objective, uh, from objective truth. But we're reflecting on the objective truth in relation to how we experience that truth in our lives. Okay? And this point is really important for the purpose of evangelizing. Because people are evangelized in a relationship. And a relationship is an experience of love. Pope Benedict, you fall in love with a person, you don't fall in love with a doctrine. Okay? The doctrine, the truth, 
helps us to experience a relationship in authenticity. Okay, but the truth in of itself does not bring about transformation. It's Jesus who brings about transformation. Okay, we're not transformed by doctrine. Sometimes we forget that because of the experience of our own faith. And again, so this is what's funny about sometimes when people criticize experience, they're actually proclaiming their own experience. Because their experiences that they grew up Catholic and they were never catechized well as a child and then they went to college and they got catechized well and now they proclaim that all we need to do is everybody needs to read everything that Peter Kreeft has ever written and then we'll transform the world. You know, we can think that. But that's not like, that's, they lost sight of like, Jesus entered into my life. You know, sometimes Jesus entered into our life outside the church. And we have all these personas in the church today and they're doing great work. But sometimes I wonder if they forgot where they had a conversion. Because you have these personas that like they grew up Catholic and they were never catechized well. They didn't, they didn't have good apologetics. They didn't know how to defend the faith. And then they left the church. They went to an evangelical church and somebody told them about this person, Jesus. And then they came to know our Lord. And they got really involved in that evangelical church. And then as they were trying to know our Lord, they started to go deeper. And when they started to go deeper, they started to study the faith. And as they studied the faith, they found themselves back in the Catholic church. And now they're spreading the gospel of studying good catechetics. Because that's the thing that brought them back into the church. And what gets lost is, somebody over here told me about this person, Jesus. And Jesus entered into my life and transformed me. And as I was transformed, then I found my way back into the church. And so they're actually proclaiming their own experience because their own experience is that through study of the truth, they found themselves back in the church. But that's not how the gospel is proclaimed if we go back to Scripture. In Scripture, the gospel is proclaimed by Jesus entering into the life of a wounded person and healing them. The gospel is proclaimed by mercy. And this is when people have a conversion. And then they have this conversion and then they can go deeper. But it's the experience of love when I don't expect to be loved that changes my heart. And when I have that experience that changes my heart, then I want to start to follow this person and I start to learn from them. The woman who's caught in adultery is a meditation that I've been reflecting on a lot lately. And... I just find it really interesting. I'm going to talk about it more as we go, but if we just like sort of reflect on her experience, nobody ever, nobody said to her, like, what you've been doing is wrong. Do something else. She simply is caught in the very act of committing adultery. She's marched out in this crowd of people. This crowd of people is all looking at her. And they all know she was just caught in the act of committing adultery. So what are they thinking about? The fact that she was just committing adultery. And she's a sinner. And then there's one person who looks at her differently. 
And that one person, like he bends down, he starts writing on the ground. Why? Because she's looking at the ground. She's not going to be looking at all these people. All these guys are looking at her with lust. So she's just like looking at the ground. Jesus bends down like, hey, look at my finger. And follow my finger up my arm and look into my eyes and see that I look at you differently. And what she sees in the eyes of our Lord is that there's somebody that looks at her with love and she's never experienced that before. And then he says, whoever among you has no sin can cast the first stone. And then he goes back down and writes in the ground again, like, hey, I'm looking at you. And I think it's interesting, perhaps they all remembered, oh yeah, I just heard Jesus say, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. So they drop their stones and they take off. And then Jesus just says, has no one condemned you, neither do I, go and sin no more. That's it. And she becomes his disciple. And she follows him. Tradition says she was there when he died on the cross. And then tradition says that she spread the gospel and took the gospel to southern France because she was transformed by the look of love. And as she's transformed by the look of love, everything in her life changes. She has this experience of Christ in her life. And like we all are called to have an experience of Christ in our life. Like our own prayer is the experience of Christ in our life. When we like to read spiritual writers, when we read St. Teresa of Avila, what are we reading? We're reading her experience of Christ in our life. So experience is important. It's an important part of our lives as human beings. right? It always has to be like sort of a reflection on the truth so that that relationship with Christ is in truth. But it's not something that we can just dismiss. So this first experience, um, yeah. How much does this open up the entire idea of some kind of therapeutic, psychological approach towards a person? Um, That's a long question. (laughs) Like, what specifically? Um, This and those kind of people um, are, are saying, you know, psychology as a form of religion how much can we take um, religion and put it in the context that you're putting it in and, and take and engage some form of therapeutic thing to help people with getting back on it. So I think it can be used. Um, so what I just did was not psychology. That was just like a reflection on the gospel. It's just the gospel message. Everything I'm going to teach you this week is the gospel message. That's it. Now I'll tell you like, and warn you what happens if you start teaching people this. Is they start reflecting on their own lives and all their wounds come to the surface. And it, they come to the surface like really pretty quickly, I found. Because um, actually like my experience was I started giving talk on the fa- talks on the family. Then I got all these people that want to come in and talk to me. Um, and what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about like what happened in my life that caused this distortion. So the gospel naturally is going to bring people's wounds to the surface so that Jesus can heal them. 
right? That's what happens in Scripture. It's the scriptural narrative. Right? Mark's Gospel. John the Baptist shows up. He starts preaching. What is he preaching on? Love. It's not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. As he preaches on that, all these people come to him and they like get baptized. It's all in the external forum. There's no like sacraments. There's no like grace. They just want to go and say, I've been a sinner and I want to change my life. And as they come, then what happens? Like Jesus shows up and he starts healing everybody. Because there's this natural process where when we encounter authentic love, we recognize the absence of love where it's existed in our lives. And most people's psychological wounds are about the absence of love. And so that all becomes more apparent, and our Lord can heal them. And I think a lot of healing can take place on the spiritual level. Now, like the, what I've, in my own ministry, kind of how things work out is people come because they're looking for a spiritual solution to a problem, but the wounds that manifest are wounds that they actually need help sort of figuring out. And so, like, the role of psychology is on a human level to sort of figure out, like, what is it that happened? How has that influenced my thought patterns? What are some more healthy ways of thinking so that I can then allow our Lord to enter into my life and transform it? Okay, deliverance ministries like Unbound, and they are really about doing an inventory of all the wounds I have in my life. And that inventory has to be pretty detailed. Most people who work in deliverance would say, like, that inventory is pretty detailed because you specifically ask our Lord into that specific wound, into that specific moment in time, into that specific event that causes distortion so that he can heal it and change the way I see myself, change the way you see yourself. So these two things work in tandem. And, um, and I think that it is an area in the church that, I think we're in the middle of figuring out how they work together. Okay, we're in the middle of figuring out how they work together. Because there's a lot of criticism that, like, spirituality turned into psychology. And we stopped proclaiming Christ, and we started just proclaiming, like, well, you just have these wounds. Like, you need to work on your dad issues, which people do, but they need to, like, let our Lord supply what was missing. Um, but there's also a temptation for psychologists, especially Catholic psychologists, to start to want to be religious. So there's a temptation that goes on there too, where psychologists want to be spiritual directors instead of staying focused in the area of psychology and working on those core wounds and like working on the human side of things. So those two things literally need to happen in tandem. That was a really long answer to a complicated question. All right, thanks. All right, you guys are determined I'm not going to get through all the material for today. No, it's okay. It's good. All right, so original solitude. So there's three original experiences that John Paul II talks about in this period, in this prehistory. Three original experiences. The first one is solitude. And this is the most neglected original experience in most theology of the body literature. But I posit it's the most fundamental. Okay? It comes from this scripture verse. It's not good for the man to be alone. Right? It refers to man as such, not only to the male. Right? It just refers to us as human beings, this state of original solitude. And solitude has two meanings. Okay? There's two ways of understanding original solitude. One is... One derives from our very nature. 
And the second one, from the relationship between male and female. So it says it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam is alone in the garden. And this is where we refer to like a reflection on experience. In his loneliness, he discovers his identity. So original solitude is about our identity. It's about who we are. And he realizes that he's superior to the other creatures. Okay, he finds himself before God as he searches for his identity. And the reason he's alone is because he's different from the world. So, when we talk about this experience of original solitude, okay, it's not good for the man to be alone. We're not talking about like loneliness, like uh, by myself, and I don't like being about like nobody's around, nobody understands me. It's not like loneliness when I go back to my rectory at 10 p.m. and everybody's in bed and I'm like, oh, there's nobody to talk to, so I just watch Netflix, <laughs> right? It's not about that kind of loneliness. Okay, it's solitude before God. It's solitude before God. And so it really means that he was alone with God. Okay, that he was alone with God. And there's a difference between being lonely, like in our normal everyday experience, and being alone with God. Right? People who suffer from addictions usually it's because they're incapable of being alone with God. And so we turn to something to try to fill ourselves up with, like fill up this void I feel in my life. Okay, But in the original experience, that emotion that we call loneliness was always interpreted as an openness to God. Because what does loneliness feel like? Loneliness feels like, oh, there's this void in my life. I feel empty inside. Nobody understands me. Nobody loves me. I'm the only person that's like this. I don't know how to talk about sports, so I don't have any friends. Things like that. It's this, it feels like an emptiness. It feels like an emptiness. Now, in the original state that emptiness would simply be interpreted as an openness to something greater than myself. Right? An openness to God. So Adam's in the garden. God creates Adam in the garden. And he's walking around the garden because he can walk around. And he's looking around him and he's, he realizes, like, okay, like, I'm material. Like, there's this air here. Um... And he sees like this thing on the ground and he can pick it up and look at it. And he's like, well, this thing's material too. It's a little harder than I am, but it can't move around. It doesn't seem to be alive. It's a rock. I'm not like the rock. I'm like God. Because he's trying to figure out what he's like. He's trying to like identify with something. And so then he keeps moving around the garden. He sees this other thing and he notices every day it gets a little bigger It's like this thing grows, and I can kind of grow. It kind of moves, but it doesn't really have the ability to walk around like I can. It seems to be alive, but it's not like me. 
So I'm not like the tree. I'm like God. Right? He's learning who he is and his experience of nature. Okay? And this is what kids do when they're born. and They're born into the world. They identify. They try to figure out who they are. Right? When they say no, what they're doing is they're learning who they are. They're like learning their own limits and their own boundaries. They're learning that they're separate from other people. That's what no does. No is a word. It's an amazing word that allows us to realize I am a person with my own space. And I'm not this person, this other person. You know, I'm, a, I'm me and I'm not other people. Right? It's an elementary truth, but it's a truth that many people struggle with. Because we grew up with wounds, and some of our wounds are we weren't allowed to say no when we were a kid. Yeah, there's this great book called Boundaries by Townsend and Cloud. It's a psychology book. It's Christian psychologists, they're awesome. And uh, it's all about like how to say no in order to take control of your life. Um, and he ta- it just talks about how like when a child grows up and they're not allowed to say no, they start to lose their identity, and they don't know how to establish boundaries. Because if you can't say no to anybody, then you might not say no to a stranger. You might not say no when you should say no. So this experience of original solitude is Adam learning to say no, like I'm not the rock, I'm not the tree. And then he sees other creatures moving around and he says, I'm not like them either. Okay, And when we get to original unity, I'll reflect on that a little bit more. Okay, So it's time to take another break. And um, so, 10 minutes.